Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'm Peter Kafka. And thanks for listening to Recode Replay. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 Code Conference. We're going to let you hear it in just a second for free. You're welcome. But before we do that, we want to plug another conference. Okay, fine, if you insist. I must, I must. You must Um, insist. If you like this event, there's a very good chance you're going to like Code Media 2018. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. 2018. I can't believe it's next year. Next year. Absolutely. Save the date. Peter and I will both be there, which means it's going to be a fantastic event. I've been to all of them and I have learned things. I would actually pay for them, Peter. We may charge you this year. Uh, One more time. That's Code Media 2018. It's like this event, but it's in 2018. February 12th and 13th. Go to events.recode.net for all the deets, as the kids say. As the kids say. Thanks, Peter. See ya. So this is, I know this has been a really long day, but I'm super excited about this interview. Uh, I've been trying to get Lorene to come to code for a very long time. She's doing some astonishing things. And I will tell a story uh, very briefly. Uh, she was nervous to come on stage. She doesn't go out in public a lot. She's doing a lot of amazing things behind the scenes. And uh, I was talking to her people and different things like that. And she said, I- I'd like to bring a friend because I'm nervous. And I'm like, oh, God, you're kidding me. You have to bring a friend to help you out. And I said, what friend? And they said, Senator uh, Kamala Harris. And I said, okay, you can bring that friend. (laughs) I'm good with that friend. They are very good friends, but there's a lot. They talk about uh, immigration, all kinds of things. So let's bring them out, uh, Lorene and Senator Kamala Harris. Thank you. I'm on the end here. Okay. Great. Oh, look, we all dressed alike. <laughs> like a girl, I look like a girl gang right now, or else except you have better shoes. Not the same. All right. I don't think I said I was nervous. Well, I you know, I, I, I thought I it would be interesting. I think, yeah, I thought you would find it more interesting. Well, you're interesting in any light. In any case, I'm thrilled. Maybe it was because I would find it more interesting. Okay, good. Okay, phew. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect then. Um, so we're going to talk about a lot of things. I just recently spent the day at the Emerson Collective, which Lorene runs. Um, and she took me to a, 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 talked about a bunch of things, a really interesting mm-hmm. speech uh, uh, about uh, incarceration uh, issues, uh, which she has at the Amherst Collective. And then we went to visit College Track, uh, which is uh, one of the things that uh, you've been backing for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start uh, talking, I think, uh, b- an issue that both of you, is important to both of you, which is immigration. It's been a hot-button issue for Silicon Valley, obviously the Trump administration with the, the, the Muslim ban, I'm going to call it that. Um, can you talk about sort of your efforts around immigration? It's one of the things that, at the Amherst Collective, and then I'd love to get your thoughts on where we are with that. Yeah, um, so I'm start- really active around it, too. And yeah. The first floor speech, actually, was about immigration. Um, I first was introduced to, to some of the dysfunction in the immigration system through students in college track. Mm-hmm. So I founded College Track almost 20 years ago mm-hmm. and uh, worked directly with students then and continue to now. And our first class of students, <clears throat> when they were applying to college, um, after having done Herculean work, uh, because they came into College Track, people enter College Track at the end of eighth grade and continue through until college completion. Um, when, when they were in that inflection point of applying to colleges, students who are undocumented obviously don't have social security numbers, they can't get state or federal funding for their education. Many of them found out at that point that 
they were undocumented. They found out the circumstances of their birth because they had been brought to the United States as, as toddlers and very young people. And they grew up here and as Americans, feel as American as anyone else. And I wasn't familiar with that issue either. This was in um, 2001, 2002. So um, I, I thought, well, this is obviously a glitch in the system that needs to be fixed. And um, perhaps we should go and visit Washington and advocate for the passage of, of what was called the DREAM Act. So I met with then-Senator Corzine and Anna Eshoo, and they both um, brought copies of the DREAM Act, different, different um, versions of the DREAM Act, but very similar to their respective houses of Congress, um, and it went nowhere. Uh, and, I, and I, even in 2002, met with tens of, of representatives thinking, Surely, surely this is uh, something that we all see as a net benefit to the United States and a colossal waste of human t talent, and um, it remains so. It remains sadly. so, the same situation. Yeah. So we went through the same, uh, you know, actually, early days, it was the Democrats in Congress that weren't willing to bring it forth, and then Afterwards, in 2007, it was the Republicans. So it's, it's actually an issue that has not been perfectly championed by, by either party. I, I really am I'm party agnostic as far as issues are concerned. Uh, I just want the right thing to happen. And here we are 16 years later, and we have 65,000 students a year who graduate from high school who are undocumented, who are perfectly capable of continuing their education. And who you've been camp. trying to train to get to higher levels of job security and everything else. You introduced me to a woman who's been over 27 years or something, 22 years, and she's under DACA and she's, yeah. uh, she's at risk of leaving, which is astonishing. Well, certainly, so, so uh, President Obama, uh, issued the executive order for DACA status in 2012. So since 2012, we've had now five years, it was June of 2012, so we've had five years of students who've been at least um, out, of, out of the, the crosshairs of ICE and, and um, deportation proceedings. But however, um, even though DACA has not been rescinded under President Trump, there are, there are stories of DACA recipients who have already been deported, yeah. who are in deportation proceedings, who are waiting in jail. So actually, um, their, their status is being challenged even without the revocation of, of the protection. And there's no policy yet. There's no clear policy. No, I mean, basically, we need, we need a, a legislative fix. All right. This is federal legislation that needs to happen. All right. Federal legislator sitting next to me. Um, <laughs> let's talk about this. We're, we talk about sort of the impact of what Trump did in the executive order from your perspective. You obviously all went... Uh, the opposite direction. So talk about where it is right now. Obviously, it's in the courts, but where is the legislative solution to this, too, and right. how you feel about it? So I, I want to acknowledge the work that Lorraine has been doing for so many years so quietly. Um, she also came up with this term after doing a lot of work on it, and it really needs to catch on. You, you talked about earned citizenship. Yeah which was a wonderful earned citizenship, earned citizenship mm -hmm. right? That what we need to do is pass comprehensive immigration reform and let's think of it as earned citizenship. Let people earn their citizenship, but mm -hmm. don't deny them citizenship. 
Um, what I have seen is a number of things, but I, I will tell you that what I think is, is going to be a, a, a chasm that we need to, to, to fill and deal with. I'm now in the United States Senate. I'm a proud daughter of California. We have an outsized stake in the outcome of this conversation. We have more um, immigrants documented and undocumented than any state in the country. One out of two Californians was born outside of the United States or has a parent who was born outside of the United States, myself included. We have a huge stake in the outcome of this conversation. We are the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world. We have almost 39 million people. We have a huge stake in the outcome of this conversation. I now serve in the United States Senate and I'm working side by side with people from all over the country. And one of the things I've realized is that there are a lot of people who are the legislators who will make the decision at the federal level about immigration who do not have any experience with this population. And they also seem, some to maybe have just forgotten the history of our country, which is that we are a land of immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but but, but, but in, 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 a, in a light most favorable to them and, and understanding what we need to deal with, I also have a lot of colleagues who are well-intentioned but just don't know who this population is. They've not attended a college track graduation. Mm-hmm. They have not seen these kids that Laureen is talking about, the dreamers. Mm-hmm. These people who, as toddlers, were brought into our country who, as she said, only know our country as their home. Uh, dreamers who are the vast majority of them in college or serving in our military or working in Fortune 100 companies. Um, some, some number, like almost half of the, the thriving businesses in California were started by an immigrant or the child of an immigrant, right? And what I'm realizing is so many of the people who actually could be leaders in getting us to the point that we pass comprehensive immigration reform, they just don't know this population. And I'll tell you how I figured that out. It was, it was, there was one moment, but many things that led up to it, but this one moment. So I serve on many committees, budget committee. I am on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Who would have known the hottest committee in town? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm on we'll um, yes, the Homeland Security Committee, and I'm on um, Environment and Public Works. So Homeland Security. So the Senate has a responsibility to confirm, if we believe it's appropriate, the, the, the appointments that the president makes to, as it turns out, his cabinet. And so in the context of Homeland Security, I then reviewed the president's nominee at the time, General John Kelly. Mm -hmm. And there were a number of questions that were being asked of him during the the confirmation hearing. And when it came to me, I asked him about DACA. And DACA, acronym DACA, basically deferred action for these kids. Deferred action meaning deferred deportation of these children and young people. And I asked him, uh, would he, is he familiar with this population? And you know that the president, former president, uh, issued this executive order that said we will defer action on their deportation if they meet certain criteria. And I asked him, and you know that these questions included, you know, the circumstances under which they were brought to the country. Are they living a lawful life? What are they doing? Have they committed any crimes? Are they being productive? Are they contributing? And if they passed, a very comprehensive examination of who they are. They then qualified for DACA. So my question in the committee hearing was, General Kelly, will you agree to keep America's promise to these kids? 
when we said, and I have the government form where we said it, that if you, young person, give us this information about who you are, we will not share that information with ICE, mm -hmm. which is the branch of the de Department of Homeland Security that deports. Mm -hmm. I asked him if he would commit. He would not commit. So they want to use it for that. So I then asked him mm -hmm. in a, another process called, a, you know, I don't know all these acronyms. I know a process called a QFR, you know, those questions for the record. And I asked him then in a formal way, will you keep America's promise to these kids? I will not commit. I will follow the, um, the, law. The, 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 the policy priorities on immigration of the president. Oh, uh, all right. So. But, but here's, what, here's what I'd like to share with you. In between those two, the committee hearing and me submitting these questions for the record, I asked for a meeting with him where he and I could just meet and talk. Mm -hmm. And during the course of our conversation, when again I asked him, will you keep our promise to these dreamers, to these kids? I could tell that he, there was a, a, a gap in terms of just body language. We weren't communicating. And mm -hmm. so I asked him, General Kelly, have you ever met a dreamer? And he said, no. Mm. And then, you know, then it kind of went downhill because I said, well, I would love to set up a meeting for you yeah, with, yeah. The, with, with them because you have to know who they are and meet them so you can see what we're talking about. And he said, well, you know, will you instead, how about if I meet with their representative? That was, <laughs> that was a low moment. Uh, but, but, but what became clear to me then and through conversations that I've had is that we need to actually create more opportunities for policymakers and opinion to leaders get to meet to them, meet to them and to meet, you know, the, the, and, and also around H-1B visas. Yeah. Same thing. They don't know the population we're talking about. They don't know this population as their neighbors, as their friends, as, as young people that they're invested in and who are, you know, who are contributing. So, Lorraine, you went to the White House to talk about this, correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, t tell, can you tell the story of what you did? You went to see President Trump. I did. Yeah. On this issue. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, and it, it, was, it was set up uh, for for the president by someone that, that we both know who um, wanted to make sure that, that he had conversation with somebody outside of the White House about it. And, um, and honestly, he was engaged in our meeting mm -hmm. and he asked you a lot were surprised. of- You were surprised. I didn't know what to expect. I right. didn't know what to expect. I, this was after the executive orders around the Muslim ban and um, I was, I, I felt like, I, he wanted to I, would, um, I would absolutely do whatever it takes if I can be helpful to students and families who I think are extraordinary and who are on the wrong side of, of, of a bad law, uh, which, is, which is all these students. So I did. I went there. And, and honestly, we've been doing national polling and um, focus group testing and with Republican pollsters for for years in, in Republican districts, in House districts, we, we have a supermajority of Americans who support uh, earned citizenship, who support a pathway to legalization and citizenship for undocumented immigrants. So I, I brought that information to the president. He, he asked some questions and then, and then he talked about having a, a huge heart for dreamers and he said, I don't wanna deport the dreamers. Um, and I said, that's really good. It would be really good for you to say that publicly as well mm -hmm. uh, so that other people can understand what your legislative priorities are. Um, so so he's, he said, you know, 
we want to pass immigration reform. And he said, speaking of himself, I think I'm, I'm the only one who can do that. And I said, certainly as a Republican president with two houses of Congress, you absolutely could do this. Um, so, so let's see it done in, in a humane and, um, and viable and thoughtful way. And so we gave them lots of follow-up information. So we'll see what ends up happening. Do you, how do you feel? What's going to happen in this? Both of you. How, where is immigration? Just not, including the Muslim ban, which is well. Has to I'll, do. I'll tell you something. We we still do work with with thousands of families um, who are living in in abject fear right now. There, there's uh, we have a huge increase uh, in in arrests across the country. Um, there are families who are now pulling their kids out of school because they're really afraid of them leaving the house. There are families who, where the parents take turn leaving so that if one of them gets arrested and deported, the children aren't parentless. Um, there's, there's a lot of discord in communities where we work. So uh, it's, it's bad. Uh, it's a bad situation. We need a legislative fix for this. Um, or we need some signal that we understand the economic engine that, that immigrants are. We understand well, it's been um, that we live in a society where we are, we are living off the labor of individuals who are living in the shadows, and that's not acceptable. From all levels. From, and so what do, you, what do you see happening? Does it have to be a court thing, or do you feel well, like? Uh, you raise a wonderful point. Um, so first of all, it, it is a shame that this president, um, I think that many reasonable people would agree, that his campaign caught fire when he talked about building a wall. Mm -hmm. First of all, Mexico's and not about, paying for the wall. And, so and let's when, all be clear about and that. And when he demonized Mexicans but, and called but, them rapists but, but that's, and that's exactly right. Yeah. He, but there, the this wall. was, but the, that's exactly right. It led up to that. Yep. And but but so, also we have so many immigrants in our country uh, who he was demonizing and- Right, and well, he wants to build a little wall around them, but go ahead. Well, he- and that's exactly right. And so there is, he built up a, a reputation and he made certain promises mm -hmm. to the people who supported him that this is his perspective on this huge population of people. Um, that there should be a wall that guards us from them, mm -hmm. that we are, you know, that he's creating a deportation force. Um, it is the policy of this administration to hire as many as 15,000 new agents in the Department of Homeland Security. Mm -hmm. And there is a Muslim ban, which courts have found to be unconstitutional. And so to your point, where is the relief? Where is, so where where is, is it going to come from? I'll say this. I think that um, what we are seeing is a situation where, you know, our democracy in many ways is being challenged, if you will. Our republic is being challenged. The way I think of it is this. Our republic, our democracy, I think, stands on certain pillars. And if you, if you want to think of it as a table with the legs, there are the three independent co-equal branches of government. So there's the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary. And then the fourth is a free and independent press. And systematically, there have been charges, and I think an attempt, to dismantle these pillars upon which we stand. And Thankfully, what is happening is it is proving the, the founders of our country right with the beautiful design we created with these three co-equal branches mm -hmm. and, a, and a free and independent press, that it is they, those pillars, that are holding the executive accountable. Even when 
you are called the lying press. Mm -hmm. Even when we talk about so-called judges, mm -hmm. even when there are attempts so to discredit the legislative where branch. Where do you imagine, what are you doing right now to stop that? Like it, from a legislature, what, what are you at, at the Emerson Collective doing? And then I want to get on to healthcare and also uh, retraining people, because that's part of it, is that this is part of, like the, the HB1Vs people, the immigrants that are getting kicked out, they're all part of the same continuum of what but, we do. But, uh, I think that you, that you are right to connect these points because part of what we are also seeing is, it, it's a false choice, by the way, that, that the American people and the American public is being offered, which is the inference is those people are taking your jobs. Mm -hmm. So we're going to build a wall and, you know, and, and cut off H-1B visas and because those people have taken your jobs, which by virtue of, of sealing them off, we're now going to give back to you. It's a false choice, and it's wrong, and it's incorrect. And I, and, but certainly, if we're going to talk about how we fix this, and I think this is where you're going, mm -hmm. we need to have a better plan for America's workforce that transitions them into the 21st economy. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's where the, our great folks in California, she says, with bravado, and around the country who are involved in tech and other um, renewable energy and other workforce issues as it relates to the 21st century are going to kick in. So, well, I think that's absolutely true, but there's, it's, it's also true that a lot of the, the response and the phenomenon of the 2016 election wasn't economically motivated, it was culturally motivated. Mm -hmm. and, and there are good pieces about that, a good analysis yeah. um, that's been written that people feel like they don't recognize their country. And mm -hmm. so there's, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, also doing, what people which don't know. What you've been doing going around the country is photographs. Explain, for example, oh, your okay. project. Yeah, that's this is else. kind of a fascinating But, but something do. that I, I'm not sure people in the audience know, which is important to know, is that we've actually had a net outflow of people on our southern border since 2014. That's mm -hmm. right. So, so it, and it's a, it's a small detail, you know, mm -hmm. it's an asterisk that most people don't, don't speak mm -hmm. about. Um, so it just adds to the ridiculousness of the wall. Um, but some of the things that we've been doing, certainly in this year, uh, uh, we, we can't push for a legislative redress, but what we can do is, is contribute to organizations that are strengthening representation for immigrants. So, so we work in the field with many legal aid clinics. Um, there are great organizations like NILC and ACLU that are, that are obviously bringing good um, litigation. There's really good impact litigation that's happening mm -hmm. across the country. So using the, the judiciary to challenge um, unfair practices, certainly. Um, but we can, also, we can also use artists and art to raise awareness. And so something that you're referring to, we, we commissioned a film with Davis Guggenheim um, to talk about dreamers and follow dreamers and their families so that, so that people could, even if they don't have um, proximity, they could get an understanding of it. We also worked with the artist JR and we went across the country to 20 cities and did what's called Inside Out 11 million. And people came and, and took these full-scale uh, portraits and hung them on public buildings. Where did you, some of them were very funny where you hung them. Where did you, you were somewhat oh, yeah, we, I mean what you did. Where did certainly, you certainly up the Freedom Tower in Miami, off the Selma Bridge, um, in, in Boehner's district, uh, in Cantor's district, you know, we had we had lots and lots of districts that were covered. Yeah, 
Uh, we did ask permission usually uh, if we could we could put them up on walls. Otherwise, uh, we had people put them on on sticks and you know stand out. I want to get to your involvement in the media in a minute, but I want to talk first about job training because that's another thing you're doing: job training and education, uh, which is something that you're pushing, and then also at where you're, what you're doing. Talk a little bit about that concept because a lot of people are worried about you're in the you represent the state that is bringing us robotics, automation. AI and possibly the end of all jobs. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you hear that, and that's probably one end of it. And then you have the tech companies saying it's all going to be great because you just think of something, and Amazon will deliver your fidget spinner yeah. without even knowing that you want it, kind of thing. Right. How do so, you bridge right. that gap? Because you want to get people trained in the jobs. How do yeah. you look at that? And do you think legislators really understand where the population's going in terms of workforce? So part of the issue is that I think that a lot of, you know, sociologists are talking about um, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's a divide in our country that is, um, is really, we can, there's part of it that we can attribute to the rapid growth of technology the, 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 and the ubiquitous nature of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so sociologists are talking about, you know, during the course of human evolution, at the point that a new language is born, it's a very pivotal Mm-hmm. moment in time. And as, as, as we know, new languages have been born. This is not pig Latin. Mm-hmm. People are emoting differently. They're thinking differently. They're feeling differently. Mm-hmm. Um, sociologists have talked about how uh, we have never seen the kind of generational divide that we now see between parent and child. Mm-hmm. It was always around music or clothing, but the divide between parents and children right now because of technology is, is pretty substantial. So people are feeling displaced in their, in their lives, even if they have a job and they can keep that job and they feel good about it. Um, but when you then layer upon that the fact that technology has upended longstanding business models, mm-hmm. um, it, there is a, a, a healthy number of people in our country who are, who are feeling displaced rightly, who wonder if they are relevant, who wonder if their skills are... Are, are obsolete, and I think we need to address that, and we need to deal with it. Um, and we have to do it in a way that, one, is about truth-telling. I think that's part of what we're missing right now in this country. Mm-hmm. We need to speak truth to people. And, you know, there is something that is also happening, which is that people are feeling a sense of distrust, of authority, of institutions, of their government. Mm-hmm. And as we know in our personal relationships, a relationship of trust is... is what it, the foundation of it is truth. Mm-hmm. Truth is something also we know in our personal and professional so relationships. To speak truth so makes people truth? uncomfortable. Right, but what's the and truth so then? leaders don't like to make people uncomfortable if they're up for election, and so they don't often speak truth in a way that will mm-hmm. make their audience right. feel uncomfortable. So what's the truth? So the truth is that we have got we are a changing society. Mm-hmm. The truth is that at some point. We're going to look at a situation where driverless cars are going to be, mm-hmm. where the jobs that employed large numbers of people around driving something on wheels mm-hmm. will not exist, be it a truck, be it a UPS driver, a postal worker, a cab driver. We have to speak truth about that. We have to speak truth about the fact that we are automating Certain industries, including coal mining. Mm-hmm. Now, and so we can talk about coal mining, and you know, people think that oh, the conversation is, do you care what kind of energy 
Are we talking about, and, and are we talking about the environment and, and greenhouse gas emissions? No, it's just actually we're going to automate that even if we keep the coal mines open. Mm -hmm. We need to but speak truth. Happened. Yeah. We have to so, speak truth, and then we have to understand that once truth has been spoken and acknowledged, we have to transition people into, a, a, into the workforce. And part of that is going to be to retrain uh, the workforce. And part of my obsession right now is what we need to do around retraining you know, that group of people who are between about 30 and 50, who once had a job, who are unemployed, and who want to work. And we're going to have to, I think, rely on our community college structure. We're going to have to learn to also transition them into renewable energies and, and, and teach them about adoption of technology. And Kara, I think one of the pieces that's really critical about that is also understanding that for a lot of the folks who want the jobs that need to be filled, they need to be trained in a way that their priority is not to go through that education process to get a cap and a gown. They want to go through that education process to get the certificate that is necessary for them to take yeah, the, the job. job. So, sure. Lorraine, what do you, how, when you're thinking about that, because it's one area you're thinking about, is how you're going to get that. Whose responsibility is it? I mean, you've been involved in the tech sector, and, and this is a, you and know. whose responsibility is it for workforce, workforce development yeah. and yeah. workforce transition? Yeah. Well, it's all of our responsibilities. Um, but certainly, if we care about solving one of the, the great problems of of our generation collectively, then that's that's one of the ones that we all have to come together to solve, um, because it you know if if the numbers are to be believed, we have three million jobs that will go away within whatever X number of years, five to ten years, um, and most of those people will need some other form of productive work. Mm -hmm. uh, so so there are really, in, you know, people are starting to think about this. There are really interesting platforms that are starting to develop in the state of Delaware, in the state of Colorado. Um, there are lots of assets that are lying vacant in communities across America yeah. that can be repurposed as maker spaces and as, as incubators um, and as job training spaces. So, there are people like um, Steve Case, who's here, who's going, you know, who's, who's talking about you know, innovation that happens in unlikely places and building out those ecosystems. So you're someone has the Emerson Collective, you've got an awful lot of money. What do you, what do you think your response, because one thing that you're doing is very quietly investing, would you think you're a philanthropy? Are you a venture capitalist? Well, how do you look at your role? At, at what we do? Yeah. Um, and what I do, I'd say um, I'm, I'm agnostic as to the form that capital takes. I'm not personally interested in, in wealth creation. I'm interested in deploying capital in the most effective way to create the greatest good that we can. Mm -hmm. And so if, if it's through philanthropy, we, we build out an ecosystem through philanthropy. Say college track, something like that. For example, right. yeah, yeah. But we have, we have a pretty robust portfolio in education and in immigration and in the environment. Um, people who we think are extraordinary social entrepreneurs. Give me an available. example in education, what you're doing there. Other than college track? Yeah. Um, Oh, there are plenty of them. We, we also do our own direct action. So, so one of the, the examples is XQ Institute, which we fund, um, that, that we incubated within Emerson Collective, where we issued a national challenge to redesign high schools. And um, 
two years ago, we issued this challenge, and we had we gave we designed um, a competition that said the you know, if you follow this, center center your redesign on student voice, truly listen to students, map the demands of the workforce uh, onto your design so the outcomes that your students have map onto the demands of the workforce. If, if, you, if you learn about neuroscience and understand that neuroplasticity happens at extraordinary rates during the teenage years, just like it does in early childhood, all of these interesting modules that we put together the teams came together, went through these modules, and came up with a brand new design for high schools in their communities that leapfrog the old design of high schools, which haven't changed fundamentally in 120 years, mainly because they were, they were based on a time-based yes. system. Yeah. And we use time as a proxy for learning, where, and now we can use content mastery and, and, and use time as, as a, a variable. At any rate, we had, after, after all these, we had 43,000 people engage in the competition. We had 700 uh, full-fledged applications from every country, I mean, every state in the country, and we ended up naming 10 super schools. And so this, is, this remains one of our initiatives. We're working with these schools. We have, um, we've developed out new standards and evaluation and teacher training programs. And so that's the, that's the kind of thing that we so do ourselves. I'm going to get to whether you're going to be president or not in a second, but um, or you're running for president or not in 2020. But, uh, but you also are investing in media. You're not Jeff Bezos, but you've been very, I wouldn't, pretty quietly investing in. Well, you can't invest quietly in media. As no, that's true. Out. You're actually, <laughs> yeah. that's why you know about it. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> um, we're all gossips. Um, what, no, no, but you actually have to be public about it. Yeah. So yes. what, yeah. what, tell, you, you have, you have investments in California Sunday, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Where else? Where else have you? Um, anonymous content, um, macro. Media, which is a, a new studio, um, and uh, Ozzy. Ozzy. Yes. So why are you doing that? Um, because it was pretty obvious to me that we could build, we, you know, we, we build out in a very cross-disciplinary way um, our work in, you know, capital investing and policy and philanthropy, and we could do this work forever and ever, and we could have the narrative overtaken uh, by, uh, by someone who's, who has a lot of power, who's completely contrary to us, and we could never get to the place where we think we're part of a, a more just and equal society. And so it was obvious that if we could be part of the, the creation of cultural narrative, uh, that, would, that would enhance and amplify all the work that we're doing. Which is Hillary Clinton talked about today, is telling the story, getting the content out there. Yeah, she was, yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so these, are, these are early days for us, but that's, that's the idea behind it. We want to inspire the kind of stories that we'd like to see told. Do you ever see you buying something bigger, like the New York Times, for example? Is it for sale? Uh, it could be for you. You could afford it. <laughs> well, I'm sure a lot of people could afford it. I <laughs> didn't know true. it was for sale. No, but I'm just saying, would that be something? <laughs> would that be something 
I could broker for you. No, Honest, no, honestly, no. honestly. <laughs> he asked for a check. He did. Dean Paquette. I heard you stage. talking about the big earlier. The big check. Yeah, the big I know check. what's on your mind. I know. Uh, but oh. he did talk about getting a big check. He would take a big check. Yes, I would. Someone oh, he did. Yeah, mm. a big check from someone who's nonpartisan who wants to help media. That sounds um, reads like you to me, but well, okay. I, I do. I do think it's a, a national treasure that should be preserved. But do you we think also, that way about media or not? Mm, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we think in big ways. Um, we also we also are supporters of nonprofit media mm -hmm. like ProPublica and Cal Matters and Grist and Chalkbeat uh, there, and and the Center for Investigative Reporting. There's some amazing uh, media companies that are also in the nonprofit sector. So yeah. we're happy about that. Uh, StoryCorps, I think, is is one of the great nonprofit yeah. media properties. Absolutely. Okay. Now, Senator Harris. Um, we have just a little more time. There, and get some questions. What, what's it like in Washington right now? What is the mood? I mean, obviously, healthcare is a big issue right now in the Senate. What's it like being there right now? How do you feel? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that captures it is um, so. My husband and I, we have a seven. No, she just turned eighteen this weekend. Eighteen-year-old graduating high school, and um, she asked me to come and speak to her class. And I did, and one of these smart seniors um, asked me, what are we going to do about a divided America? Mm -hmm. And I looked at her, and I thought for a moment, and I, and I said, um, I actually reject the premise. Mm -hmm. I don't believe we are a divided America. And I'll tell you why. When the vast majority of people wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning with that thought that is rattling us with that thing that is worrying us when we wake up in a cold sweat, worrying about that thing at three o'clock in the morning. We are never thinking about that thing through the lens of being a Democrat or a Republican. And for the vast majority of people, when we are thinking that thought at three o'clock in the morning, it usually has to do with one of just a very few things. Our personal health, okay. the health of our children, the health of our parents, can we get a job? Can we keep a job? Can we pay the bills by the end of the month? Can we retire with dignity? For, also the, vast, also, for the vast majority yeah. of people. Yeah, also, house of cards, how upsetting it is, but go ahead. But, but <laughs> you know, and, and that if you have the time to watch cards, and you can actually p p afford cable. Okay, fine. Right? <laughs> no, really. Okay. I know, you're a so, senator, you're super busy. So, so the point is that the vast majority of people have so much more in common than what separates us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so let's just think of it in the context of universal values and universal truths. And I think that what has happened in Washington, D.C. over the years is we have accepted this premise that is a false premise that we are a divided country. And the only way that I think we're going to come out of this is to acknowledge that there are these universal truths and to acknowledge that the vast majority of us have so much more in common than what separates us. And we can just go back to one of the first questions you asked. The, the parents of those dreamers have the same dreams for those children, those kids, that any other parent has. And we've got to get away from seeing so many issues that are core issues, that are fundamental issues, um, through the lens of, of party affiliation or ideology when in fact there are just some issues that are not even bipartisan, they're nonpartisan. The problem with Washington, I think, is that some people have been, you know, we, we have as a country perhaps accepted a false premise, which is that there are partisan issues and there are Democrats' priorities and Republicans' priorities instead of 
core priorities. And mm -hmm. I will tell you in my relationships and interactions, and I'm making a very, very serious and I think productive effort to work across the aisle on just that point. When I'm sitting down with someone who is, you know, Lindsey Graham. He's a who, funny guy. He's a great guy. Who, you know, ostensibly, what would I have in common with him? What would he have in common with me? We get on so well and agree on so many points. And so I'm optimistic. I'm not, I mean, I'm a realist, mm -hmm. but I'm optimistic that, the, you know, the cliche about Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. is actually something that we can get beyond. But it's going to take a lot of the work. The thing is, I get your emails, and they're pretty mad. I get Kamala Harris emails all the time, and they're like, we've got to win back the House. We've got to win this back. And Clinton, the Senate Secretary. Yeah, well, we do when you have a House of Representatives that is trying to kill the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. which is going to result in 23 million people losing health care. And when they're trying to get rid of Planned Parenthood for political and ideological reasons when every day that Planned Parenthood stays, stays in, in force, 8,100 people every day go there and the vast majority of them are not there for abortion. In fact, only like family some... Visits. Yeah, but for family planning. And family yeah. And So yes, I get upset about that. Yes, I get upset when someone says that it's okay to ban people coming from countries based on the, the, the God they worship. Yes, I get upset when we say we're going to shut our door to refugees who are fleeing such atrocities and have been standing in line for two years to qualify for refugee status. And they arrive here and we turn them away. Yes, I'm going to get mad about that. Yes, I'm going to get mad Good. when we have... I'm going to get mad when we have an attorney general who is trying to resuscitate the war on drugs. Yes, can we talk and about that? And he thinks the greatest evil that mankind has ever seen is marijuana. <laughs> it's gateway. Like, I'm, I've said this and you've seen this in my emails. Yeah. Leave grandma's medical marijuana alone. <laughs> Just leave it alone. <laughs> so, so what are you going to do about that? How are you going to, what did the Democrats do? I think one thing is we just have to speak truth. We have to be active. You know, some people say to me, a lot of people ask me, Kamala, what can I do? What can we do? Does it matter? And it does matter. The reason the Affordable Care Act, the first time they tried to get it out of the House, it failed, was because people were speaking up and saying, don't play politics with public health. Mm -hmm. Same on in terms of what, what's happening around, you know, what we're doing around immigration, what we're doing, you know, the people speaking up. And so even though they've not committed to keeping DACA in place, they've not done away with it yet. We have to stay active. And, you know, we have to stay woke. Like, everybody needs to be woke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you can talk about if you're the wokest or woker, but just stay more woke than less woke. Yeah. And, and know that you're, and, and we all have to know our voice matters. And so, you know, it's not just whistling in the wind. It does matter. And maybe the one of the many silver linings, whatever you believe, whoever you support, it's good for our democracy when people feel engaged and they feel passionate. However you feel, again, whoever you vote for, mm -hmm. that's good for us. Especially when we came out of an election cycle where, you know, we have... A, a, a foreign government who, by all accounts, interfered with the election of president of the United States. These are serious times. Mm -hmm. And these are not issues that, you know, we can just sit around with a glass of Chardonnay debating, you know, and, 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 and philosophizing about. The decisions that are being made right now are impacting real human beings. Mm -hmm. Lorraine talked about it. 
There are children who are not being sent to school because their parents are worried that they will then, those children, come in contact with authorities who will deport the parent. The, the, the police chief of Los Angeles, one of the largest police departments in the country, will tell you how there has been a, an exponential decline in people among immigrants reporting crimes against them. Yeah. So I'm talking about a rape victim. Yeah. I'm talking about a victim of domestic violence, well, Houston, of child sexual assault, who is right, not right. reporting a crime against them. Because let me tell you, and I know this from prosecuting cases, mm -hmm. that, domestic, that victim of domestic violence, let me tell you, the one instinct that a woman has that is stronger than anything else is to protect her children. And she will not report a crime against herself if she thinks she'll be removed from her children and can't protect them. Mm -hmm. These are the times in which we're living. Mm -hmm. so. And so we have to be active and we have to speak out. And so, yes, there are certain emails and texts that I sent out with an exclamation point. All right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you, it's early, but do you want to run for president in 2020? I, I, I'm not giving that any consideration. I, I, I got to stay focused. You got to stay I got to stay focused. There's so much happening right now. Okay, so I'll that's take that I'm as a yes. Lorraine, Lorraine, the last question, then we'll get to questions. You were just saying we should bring that up. Was it the environment or? No, no, no. That was Sessions. Sessions. That was, yeah, that was just about. So you would like to keep your medical marijuana also, in other words. No, or, or no, the, the Grandma's medical marijuana. No, but just the, incar <laughs> the incarceration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he, he's rolling back criminal justice. Last thing I'm going to ask you, and then we'll absolutely get to questions, is you are making a lot of environmental investments at the Emerson Collective. Um, mm -hmm. Paris Accords. Reaction? Uh, well, I think like everyone, it, it, I agree it would be a colossal mistake for the United States to pull out of the Paris Accords for every reason that's already been outlined. Uh, obviously economic, obviously that's uh, a, the wave of the future. Um, obviously that that's where the momentum is. And so for us to, to obviously, um, well, Secretary, Secretary Clinton actually spoke about this beautifully. When we abrogate these international treaties uh, that, were, that were created by predecessors, we weaken all, you know, our word, our power, our effectiveness around the world. Um, and that's pretty obvious. And then and it's also a big mistake for us to pull ourselves out of that I think the the world order in this way that would be so chaotic and um, sabotage the economic future of the United States and so investments you're there, making. There, there's so many reasons why it's a really bad move. Okay, questions from the audience. Thank you. Uh, hi, Josh Topolsky, the outline. Um, so you talked a lot about truth, universal truth, which I'm a big fan of. Truth generally. But how do you speak truth or talk about truth to people whose entire vehicle for um, their vehicle is the derangement or perversion of truth and that, that the tool they use is to take what is true and turn it into something that is a complete lie? So what is the how do you raise up away from like, OK, we all we're all reasonable here and we agree on some basic truths, right? Mm -hmm. Paris Accord, really good idea. Mm -hmm. But if you can twist that and, and make it into something that sounds dangerous and scary and worrisome to a large group of people or sound or is something that's completely untrue how do you how do you t how do you use like how does language work there and how how yeah. would you see it working so uh thank you that's a wonderful question here's i'll use your example paris accord um the way that 
I might think about talking about it is um, not about necessarily greenhouse gas emissions or about scientists. And my mother was a scientist. I love science and I love scientists. Um, but I would talk about it just based on just the basic fundamental issue there. Everyone needs to breathe clean air and drink clean water. And if you're talking with a family in Flint, Michigan, or in you know, some places in Ohio, or some places in the South, where that is not something they can rely on, they'll hear that because they know they can't rely on it. And that's a universal truth. And, um, and I think we have, you know, there's a, um, in certain African countries, when you meet someone for the first time, uh, the greeting is not pleased to meet you. It's, I see you. I see you. I see you in, you know, your full relief in all the contexts and, 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 and parameters in which you live. So I see you, the, the mom who is trying to get her kids to school every day, and you know, you understand, and, and you understand something about what her existence involves, including that she just wants her kids to have clean water and clean air. Seeing people in the circumstances in which they live and then talking with them in a way that acknowledges that we see them for all the dimensions of who they are. I, that's, that's what I mean by universal truths as much as anything. And Lorraine, since you own uh, media and um, thinking about this. I, I think, though, what you're asking is um, how do we combat the malfeasance and a lot of the manipulation with evil intent that, that we've seen in this, this last election and in the last year. Uh, and I think, I think that... that responsibility actually rests on the shoulders of the tech community to figure out how, how, do we, how do we look at this, how do we recognize that this is happening, and what are the next steps. So, uh, the great thing about um, people in this audience and, and, and all the companies you represent is that we're problem solvers. And I think people really need to think about how do we get back to that place where, where we can acknowledge and recognize the same base of facts and, and truth, because we've lost it. Yeah. But, I, but I would also add that I think it's really important that we don't, um, that, that there's nothing about our tone or the inference of what we're saying that suggests that people who voted one way were less intelligent or informed than we are. That's, that's, that is a mistake because it's actually not necessarily accurate. And so there is that part of it, which is in speaking truth and, and, and wanting to then convince someone that the Paris Accords matter, that greenhouse gas emissions are a real threat, that CO2 is a real threat. Um, let's, let's, igno- let's not say so for you to support some other perspective makes you dumb. Let's take it back to the thing where we can actually agree. We need clean water and clean air. Mm-hmm. And so let's all agree that's a priority for us, and we don't want anyone who's going to threaten that and our access to clean water. Clean air. I'll, and I'll give you an example of, like, again, there's so many examples of California and what we have done that show the connection between a clean air and, and having policy priorities and people in elected office care about the significance of greenhouse gas emissions, vehicle emissions. And I'll give you an example. We're in Southern California. Um, do you, anybody remember coming to L.A. like in the 80s? Yeah, it was smoggy. It was awful. It was so thick, the smog. 
right? You could you'd sneeze, people get asthma, it was off. And then what happened? There was a policy decision. Hey, guess what? The vehicle emissions are contributing to that thing happening. We're going to change the whole deal. And now you can see the sky in LA. And so we have examples of the connection between these points. So we can show people the math and the dots, but ultimately the point is you want to breathe clean air. Getting down to it. Yeah. Hi, uh, John Ford from CNBC. Question for Lorraine. I think we're, we're watching Mark Zuckerberg, the, the man who taught us how to connect electronically all over the world, go dining room table to dining room table across middle America trying to connect to people who he somehow couldn't connect to otherwise. Uh, and he understood that differently throughout 2016. From your position of trying to affect policy and the future, do you find that personal connection or that cultural disconnect uh, something that you also need to bridge? And is there some kind of message for Silicon Valley's elite, many of whom are sitting in this room, about the need to do that? Also, she did do this photography project that was quite remarkable. I thought very uh, deft in terms of bringing photographs everywhere across the country. So I thought that was super interesting. But um, are you going on a tour to touch livestock? No, I'm going <laughs> to. I'm not going on a tour. Uh, but uh, I think that Brian Stevenson, when he speaks about proximity, is exactly right. And something that that Kamala was touching on sometimes. It's, it's very difficult to put yourself in another person's shoes unless you actually meet that person or perhaps if you're sharing a meal with that person. Um, for 20 years, I've been working in communities and working directly with students who will be first in their families to go to college. And even, even to this day, I'm a college counselor for first gen. Um, college students. And so I actually have the great good fortune of, of knowing students and families directly. And I work in East Palo Alto and Oakland and in the Bayview and, so, and sometimes New Orleans. And so I actually do get that exposure. I think it's essential for me. And, and, I'm, and I respect Mark a great deal because I think he found that it was essential to him to have that proximity to, to take the time and sit and listen so you can really and truly understand the problems that you're trying to solve as they're experienced by the people that you're seeking to serve. So you don't have to go far, is your, you? Mm. Well, East Palo Alto is about two miles from my house, so no. Uh, yeah. you I would urge what, you I, In fact, no one in this room has to go very far to be proximate to issues that, that may not touch them directly, but touch people in their communities directly. What about this, the people you're seeking to convince? Is there an equal or approximate need to have that same sort of meeting with them? Um, I'm not sure I know what you mean by the people I'm trying to convince. Well, I mean, and not at all to diminish what you said, I think it's very important. You're, you're talking about the communities who you're hoping to affect with your policy, kind of directly connecting with them. But there are other communities who see this as a zero-sum game, who might feel threatened by those efforts. Is there a need to connect with those communities who you know, residents of California might be missing? Um, the Rust Belt, Appalachia. Okay, so yes, 
uh, I'm not only talking about doing work in a couple of communities in California. Um, if you take XQ for an example, uh, we have visited 58 cities and communities. We've gone from the East Coast to the West Coast to the East Coast three or four times, taken many different routes. Um, I was just myself recently in Detroit, but uh, XQ's been in the last couple of months in Indiana and Wisconsin and Michigan uh, and Ohio. And so we, I think it's important to go everywhere because um, pain and suffering is felt across the country and, and in different ways. And so you, you really, but there's also creativity and innovation and, and massive ingenuity within communities. So if you understand that, that the wisdom and, and the collective problem solving resides within communities and uh, you want to actually be a facilitator for those problems to be solved, then that, that's, I think, the only way that sustainable solutions actually happen. And I think what Mark was saying yesterday was also the same. They don't want to just come in and you tell them what to do. Like, here, be like us or something like that. That was an interesting observation. Well, it's, that you're not it's going not to visit accurate the people. It's not or useful or yeah. sustainable. I mean, it, there, we have enormous talent and ingenuity and IQ dispersed across this world. We do not have opportunity equally dispersed across yeah. this world. That's a really good point. Tammy? I applaud all your efforts, but I have to ask you, as I hear you, both of you speak, wouldn't it be great if you, if you look at the successes in changing hearts and minds this year, you've got the Women's March, you have the Climate Change March, you've got a variety of things. If you just gathered people, look at Sheryl Sandberg, what she did with Lean In. If you just gathered people, all the efforts you have, all the organizations you have, and stand behind one issue or stand up front, take paid ads, all the ways we know how to influence people. I just feel like you two could make such a great change. What about picking one thing? Wouldn't everyone gather with them? Like Hillary Clinton said, it, we need, they need money. This is for you know, democratic politics. But to your issues, if you put money directly behind paid ads, you can change all the hearts and minds you're talking about. What about taking that kind of leadership role and gathering everyone in this room and all around the country behind you? I, I would suggest that we think about perhaps one theme as opposed to one issue. Uh, the Women's March, for example. Um, when I spoke at the Women's March, so as I was the first woman elected DA of San Francisco, I was the first woman elected AG of California. Reporters would come up to me with this very original question, so what's it like to be the first woman fill in the blank? Yeah. And I'd always say, well, I mean, I don't really know what to tell you because I've always been a woman. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure a man could do the job just as well, right? right. Um, but, but so in the, and so then people would come up to me, okay, um, well, so, but tell us about, talk to us about women's issues. And I would look at them and I'd say, you know, I am so glad you want to talk about the economy. <laughs> right? Because as we know, when you lift up the economic status of women, you lift up the economic status of families and neighborhoods and communities and society. Okay. Women's March. Let's talk about women's issues. Fantastic. Let's talk about national security. Let's talk about climate change. Let's talk about criminal justice reform. Let's talk about immigration. Um, I think we lose, to your point, you want to capture the audience. I think we lose the audience when we think of them as fitting into any one discrete box. And I'll, I'll go a step further. 
after um, the election this past November, there was a conversation that was taking place in certain circles um, that, and the conversation was, did we lose that white unemployed man who lives in Scranton or Lansing? And I had a problem with that conversation. The inference was that to do that, we're gonna to have to shift away from that Latina or black mom. Now that's a mistake for a couple of reasons. One, because supposed leaders have made the mistake of when they go into the black church, all they wanna talk about is criminal justice reform. When they go into the community center in the Latino community, all they wanna do is talk about immigration. Well, guess what? Back to my point about what people wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking about. Those two ladies and that man have almost everything in common in terms of what wakes them up at three o'clock in the morning. And it is all those things. That is the full and complete way they live their lives. And so let's, let's think about one theme perhaps as opposed to one issue. That's my perspective. And it would be about, truly about universal truths about how we live our lives. We want our children to be healthy and safe and educated well. We want to know our parents have access to health care and they're not paying an exorbitant amount for prescription drugs. We want to know that we, have, we live in a safe community, that we have a job with you know, all of the benefits we need and we can retire with dignity and someone's not going to engage in predatory lending practices or predatory student loan practices. Some basic stuff. And, and so see people where they are, but I think that the one universal truth is we have to deal with the economic status of the vast majority of people in this country. And, um, and when we do that, we also have to understand back to the point that it's not just one issue. In order to deal with that, guess what we need to talk about? We need to talk about affordable childcare. Because I can't get a job and keep a job if, I, if the, the salary that I'm making just puts me at net zero if I have to pay for childcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I would suggest that we multitask. And Lorraine? <laughs> Lorraine? Um, well, I, th- I think what you're hearing is that when, when you pull a thread, the entire fabric comes. Uh, when, when you're working with individuals, um, you, there is no silver bullet, unfortunately. There is no single issue. Everything is connected, and, and everyone is interconnected. And so at first, um, when I first started out 20 years ago, I was of the same mind, and I thought that if, if we could just give an excellent education to every student, every classroom that, that, uh, we, that we work with, that will, that will change their lives. And, and thus... It'll change their families' lives. It'll be ripples upon ripples, and then uh, families and communities will change. And, and while it's true, and there's, there's great beauty and power in, in, in one life changed, it's also not true at all, because those, those students who are the first in their families, and they have entirely different educational outcomes than everyone else around them, they, as much as they want to return to their communities and be part of the change of their communities, there's, there's no job for them once they're college graduated. And um, they're also, when they're the first in the family, they're also the translator. They're also the, the one in the family that solves problems. And so they have to, they have to figure out immigration status and they have to figure out how, how to support their parents and they have to figure out how to get childcare for their siblings, et cetera. So, and then the whole issue of healthy water and soil and air comes into play. And, that, you know, and so once you start trying to remove obstacles for individuals and unlock human potential, you realize they're, they're concentric circles 
that you must work in if you actually want individuals to have sustained change. Right, but if okay. you stand in front of an audience, um, go to the National Mall, and say what you said, people would follow you. That's my point. So are you running in 2020? <laughs> <laughs> well, one of us should. Yeah, obviously. Karen, do you have that? I think we'd all support you. Thank you so much. This has been a great panel. Um, my name's Karen Friedman. I'm a consumer advocate in Washington, D.C. I work with thousands of retired truck drivers and construction yeah. workers who are losing their pensions. Yeah. I totally agree with you, Senator. These guys care about keeping the promises made to them, yeah. but they also care deeply about their children. And, you know, I've been sitting here for two days and they, I've been amazed at the innovation in this room, but these very people are, are sort of feeling lost yeah. in this new economy. This is sort of a question for both of you, but what about like a new deal? Yeah. Something that I know now because everybody's anti-government, but why, does, why can't we create something between Silicon Valley <coughs> philanthropists, the yeah. government, yeah. to create jobs, um, to create you know, a retirement system that works for the yeah. future, you know, you'd have the tax base to, to, to pay for it. You could do retraining. You could create new jobs in this economy. Because I don't think that, you know, the thing that's been really hitting me listening to people is that, you know, these guys are the innovators. They're not going to solve all the problems. Government still has that role. Yeah. Um, so I'd like your, just your right. opinions on that. Briefly and then drinks. Go ahead. Well, I'll a new do, deal? I'll say, I'll say what, absolutely. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And, and, it, at Emerson, we, we talk about it as Social Compact 2.0. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we need to forge a new social compact, uh, recognizing all the, all the realities, all the things that we know now, uh, our connectedness, the opportunity, the connection between business and government and, and civic society. So I, I agree with you, and uh, I think it will take everybody in this room and, and many, many more people to, to gather around and reframe how we want to be on this planet. I agree, and I, I, I agree with the, the, the capacity of the people in this room um, to, to, to really be a part of a, a substantial coalition is profound, and so, and it's about, it, government has to be a part of this. And I know that there are a lot of folks who would just like government to leave them alone, and let them do their business, but government exists, and um, and government has a unique ability to allow the, the the what we're incubating here to scale up, and that's an important thing to always remember. Government has the capacity to scale up, and so but it, and it also has to be about the application of of technology to everything that we are doing. So there, I'm also obsessed with the need for adoption of technology by government because that's a huge issue and a problem. And so that's where the tech industry and all of the leaders come in. Um, but then also it is about helping inform uh, what we do when we set up a meaningful training, uh, national training priority. And I think, again, through our community college system, we have the skeleton there, which is the community college system of our country. Two-year, give people a two-year process of getting, and not, again, it's not about a degree, it's about a certificate. When they, they need, they want a job, not a cap and gown. Yeah. Well, that's and so, right, and so, right, and so business has to be a part of it. So business helps c inform the curriculum. 
based on what we actually what jobs need to be filled and we have a lot of jobs in this country that need to be filled and they're not necessarily high skill mm -hmm. but we do need to we do need to you know improve the skills and skill up if you will um, and that's going to be it has to be a public private partnership and this industry will be a phenomenal leader in that partnership and we should talk about how we're going to continue to have everyone um, get together in one room, so to speak, a virtual room, and, and work on this. All right. I'm so glad you're friends, because you're very interesting <laughs> together. Thank you so much. Thanks, yeah. Kamala Harris. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 